Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the BSF Lecture Talks. I'm Abraham Lee, the BSF teaching leader for the San Francisco region, and today we're on lesson nine of our study of the amazing Gospel of John, where Jesus meets a crowd of people driven about all the wrong things. How are you driven and running after things that don't satisfy? I know I have my fair share of running after things that I thought would be fulfilling, especially uh, in my younger years. You know, for most men, that that kind of being driven and passionate about things involves um, a great career that we imagine will take us places. I was involved in consulting and education, and then after graduate school, I joined a startup making maps and GPS systems in what is now currently smartphones that we have. But before then, we had these things called Palm Pilots and handspring devices. And uh, that's what I was working on. And I thought maybe that would fulfill my life to be productively used, to be useful in the world. I grew up poor as an immigrant family. So poverty complex drove me in directions I didn't realize would be so empty. So when I was traveling the country and going to trade shows, staying at the nicest hotels, uh, eating the nicest food, <laughs> it was only interesting for about six months. And then I saw how how very, very uh, empty that life was. And it was a very lonely uh, life at that. I was surrounded by other professional colleagues of mine. And, you know, their idea of a good time was in hanging out, was really going to the bar, drinking, back talking about other people. And the conversation quickly would disintegrate to locker room garbage talk. And uh, at the end of the evening, I'd go back to my room and it was just totally empty. I finally had my own house after a while, a nice car. I was one of the first people to own a Prius uh, hybrid. And I got, uh, every time I got something, I prayed to the Lord, Lord, these are yours. Do with them as you will for your ministry and for your glory. And then one day I came out of my office and found my car was vandalized. Someone taken a, something sharp and swiped from the front of the car to the back several times made huge gashes, and I was so upset. Anger and evil thoughts ran through my mind. And just as this was going on, suddenly God spoke to me. And he said, and I still remember it so clearly, he said, Abraham, I thought you gave me that car. Isn't that my car? If it's my car, why are you so upset over something that belongs to me? But isn't it true that what you have committed to me has not been mine, including your life? And I remember stopping in my tracks and just the the message that god was putting on my heart and mind at that time made me stand still and reflect on my life and everything that's transpired since how i was really driven for the things that i wanted and not for the things that god cared about god was right i spoke words and you know words are cheap i spoke words of surrender and submission to god but my life didn't show it and I remember just standing there and I prayed, God, you're right. You are right. I want to live for you as I should. Please show me how. I really didn't know what that was going to look like. I was involved in Sunday school. I was involved in church. I was in the choir. I was doing a lot of things, but I didn't really live totally for him. And then when I prayed this, he started to show me what direction I need to take. And then my life took a totally different turn 
in ways better than I could have ever expected or planned for myself. You know, it's just like Proverbs where it says, Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. How true that was for me. And so last week we studied a very important sign Jesus gave to show people that he was the bread of life. He was the bread of life, the manna from heaven that the Israelites lived on in the desert, in the desert of their lives. It was a picture of the bread of life of our Savior, Jesus. Our Savior would be for everyone who placed their trust in him. Isaiah 55, actually, in the prophecy Isaiah gives, says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the riches of fare. Give ear and come to me, hear me, that your soul may live. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst forth in song before you, and all the trees of the field would clap their hands. Amazing promise given for all of us believers in God through Jesus. And it's in Jesus we are told in John 6, 27, Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed a seal of approval. And so when we observe the Lord's Supper at the communion table, uh, the Lord's Supper, we are reminding ourselves together we are all partakers of the same bread of life in Christ's life. You know, the altar so often uh, spoken about in the Old Testament, you know, that was where the innocent lamb lay sacrificed for our sins. And that altar now becomes in the New Testament a table. If you can imagine that altar kind of coming down, he says it's a table upon which Jesus invites us. Jesus, the great sacrifice, invites us to partake of his life. He is the Lamb of God. And he is the spotless Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. You see, the closest thing the Old Testament people had to the cross was the altar of sacrifice. He is the source of all that we are and will be in the future. If you can imagine the profoundness of that thought, that everything eternal about our future is wrapped up in the reality of Christ's life in us, teaching, preparing, transforming, and remaking us into his people, suited for his purposes. So, the theme of this lesson is that Jesus is the bread of life. And the aim is to teach us that only Jesus, the bread of life, can satisfy our spiritual hunger and give us eternal life. And some principles that it is causing us to think deeply about is that Jesus has revealed all we need to believe in him. Jesus offers to meet our greatest need, our salvation in him. And Jesus offers lasting security for this life and the life to come and into eternity. That's a fantastic promise. And, you know, there really hasn't been any other ancient documents or any revelation given to man where you can read the things that we're reading right now in John. The thing about John is that most of us sometimes get swept away by the miracles. But when we look at what Jesus actually teaches about the miracles themselves, 
they are unlike anything you have ever read anywhere else. There's no one with the kind of authority that can say the things about where our lives will go, what he plans to do beyond this life, into the life to come, into eternity. Eternity is not something that you just talk about, you know, like you're talking about shopping at Safeway or something. Uh, this takes a great deal of understanding. And he says he's the only one that has seen the Father. He's the only one that can give life. So when we teaching us these things, we have to sit up and really take things to heart and really process them deeply. Here's a slide that shows the map of the Lake of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, excuse me, and uh, the possible route that they went from feeding the 5,000 and then getting on the boat and traveling to Capernaum. So why is Capernaum so important in Lesson 9? Uh, just a slight detour in our talk. I just wanted to show you this to give you an understanding of the setting. So this geographically is a very strategic area located in the narrowest point of the kind of international highway through the Fertile Crescent. So for all of that's going on in Africa and the riches of Egypt, and then all that's going on in, uh, in the Middle East, uh, there's a great deal of traffic going through this area. And one of the biggest uh, resting points, but also a great point of commerce and trade and um, knowledge transfer and people learning about new things. Uh, you can think of this as the kind of New York City or San Francisco of the day was this international highway right here um, in the Sea of Galilee area in Capernaum. So there was a Roman centurion and soldiers based there due to their this trade route and thus it was an important collection point for tolls and taxes. Matthew's tax booth was there and this is where Jesus called him to follow him. The king had a royal office occupied by high-ranking officials here. You remember that there was a royal official who had um, a sick child and you know came to Jesus when he was in Cana and begged him to heal his son who was fatally ill in Capernaum, uh, John 4. Capernaum was the center of Jesus' ministry for about 18 to 20 months, we believe, and it had a thriving fishing industry, and on this shore was where Peter, Andrew, James, and John were called by Jesus to follow him. You remember, Peter, you know, he's a married man. He has a home there. And Jesus healed his feverish mother-in-law, which confirmed for Peter of who he was. And then when they were out fishing one day, possibly fishing and thinking a thousand different thoughts, they couldn't help remember what Jesus did and what he said. And then Jesus shows up at the shoreline and he says to them, Come follow me and I will make you fisher of men. And this becomes the foundation that serves for the, as a mission for the rest of their life. So we live in a world that trains people, you know, to be distracted. But these men uh, who are kind of distracted in their own livelihoods here uh, were called by Jesus to an entirely different life. And their lives were forever changed robustly in ways they couldn't understand. It, touched, it changed the, the world. It changed Western civilization, the Holy Roman Empire. And now the Holy Roman Empire became uh, the flourishing Europe, which touched um, the Americas. And now the gospel is entering 
and has been entering with force into the unreached peoples of the 1040 window, where humanism and secular human Marxist-Leninism reigned for many years this century, and now the gospel is heading all the way back to Jerusalem through the Islamic nations. So we live in a world um, where there's a tension, right? Worldly concerns and the concerns of God. But when we are kind of straddling both worlds and we don't know where to go, we tend to have this mindset of the world. And that mindset sometimes is very much rooted in bargaining and haggling, negotiating and manipulating people to get something in our favor. And manipulation is an interesting word because um, it comes from the Latin root mani, which means shaping, forming with our hands. The word manual <laughs> Uh, is uh, where we get that word. And it conveys this idea that when we manipulate someone, we are shaping and casting them and their will in the shape and form we want them to be so that they, they could be doing things our way. In this lesson, we see people who are running around working to find Jesus, around to manipulating Jesus, uh, not listening to his word, but wanting their word to have predominance. So they might have seen, uh, at the start of our passage here, they've seen disciples get into a boat and head in a certain direction. And now they're chasing after the disciples, assuming that Jesus was also on board, trying to get him to produce more food, make him ruler, make him king of the land, so that they could have forever a social wel welfare messiah. So people are always going about trying to usurp Jesus' mission and his very identity. They want to shape Jesus to be what they want him to be for them. But Jesus won't have that. Jesus will never allow for the hijacking of his purposes and his aims that has been given to him by the Father to do the Father's will. He won't have it. He won't stand for it. Anytime there is a work like that, Jesus at one point tells Peter, it is a work of Satan. The life of faith cannot be built on also these manipulations, nor on miracles. So much of our faith, when not careful, can go in that direction like the older son in the prodigal son parable, where he says, you know, all these years I've been slaving for you and you never gave me a party of my own, paraphrased. Um, this is where, you know, we start doing the Christian life only because we think it's going to give us something in return, which is another form of manipulation. When we realize that the God of the universe doesn't owe us anything, then we begin to realize everything that we have has been given as gifts of God's mercy and grace. Everything. He doesn't owe us anything. Everything that we do have is a form of His grace and His mercy. When Jesus teaches us to pray, He says, pray not my will, but your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that means that we don't manipulate or bargain to shape God, but we let God shape us. And our will primarily is being shaped into his thinking and his heart on matters that come up in our lives. We can beseech, we can bring things to God, but we know that our prayers need far more to be expansive and reaching into how God feels about things. Uh, that's what prayer is about, getting to know the heart of God, really. In order to do that well, it means understanding what God is like, what He desires, and how He sees things. And once we grow in our understanding of God's heart, 
you know, our, our prayer lives change. And you start to pray uh, not along a laundry list of what you want, but you're guided by the Holy Spirit to understand and see issues that God cares about. And you're praying that God's will be done in people's lives because that's the best remedy for what they need. Right? You pray acknowledging your own need, your own weaknesses, and your utter dependence on God. Also, understanding that even as you express your needs, you're understanding that God cares for you far more than you could ever think or imagine. He cares and loves the ones you're praying for far more than you can even you know, begin to think. That is the confidence we enter into in our prayers. That is the confidence that we have. So when we say we enter into the presence of God in our prayer, we're entering into all the attributes of God, the attributes of God, who will undertake all things for His glory and our good. So we do God's will, not God doing our will. We must always remember God never owes us anything. He is completely sovereign and His being isn't contingent with us. He is entirely self-sufficient. So let's review what this means for our chapter here. We're looking into believing Jesus, the bread of life, who ensures eternal satisfaction, eternal life for us. And the first division is the work of Jesus. Verses 22 to 27 is about the food that endures, that he wants to give. And 28, 29, the work that endures, that he wants us to be involved in alongside him. And the principle here is believing in Jesus makes us eternal people belonging to God's kingdom. Our work is to believe on the one God has sent. Verse 29 says, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And then the second division is the understanding the will of the Father. Verse 30, 33 talks about the Father who is the source of life. Verse 34 says, Jesus is the bread of life given to us by the Father. And 35 to 40, he is the security for life, for this life and the life to come. So the principle that we learn through this is Jesus offers lasting security for this life and eternity. Based on verse 51, um, it says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Uh, thank you, Nancy Argo, who has helped me put this together based on her outline. And so... Going to the question sets, uh, we're going to start off with the first question here uh, on the second day, John 6, 22 to 27. The question asks, what did Jesus respond to the people's first question reveal about their desire and true need? Well, they're going around working, you know, this was not an easy trip. Uh, I think they might have covered about 7 to 10 miles overnight uh, because they were fed and they wanted to be fed for free, <laughs> forever, for the rest of their life, you know. Uh, but Jesus was no vending machine. <laughs> Miracles have a way of distracting and detracting us from God to the power that we see. We love power. You know, if you look at what I, our society with all the CGI graphics and movies do, uh, we idolize power. But Jesus reveals his power only so that it might reveal who he is. His miracles are a calling card to his lordship. And that should wake us up. It should humble us. But instead, when we see miracles and we see power, we don't see the powerful person behind the power and authority. Perhaps this is why Jesus was reluctant to do many miracles 
in certain places because they detracted and they distracted from his main message that he wanted to teach the people. He wasn't there to entertain people. He wasn't there to, you know, do parlor tricks every time people asked. No. The Gospels say Jesus did not do many miracles at certain places because of their lack of faith. And that should teach us something that, you know, miracles can only mean something powerfully if there's faith in people to see into them something more than just the power. Only with some faith. And by seeing from the lens of faith, would miracles tell us the right story? If the people didn't have faith, miracles only fed into the wrong thinking and wrong perceptions of the people witnessing them. In this particular case, people think their true need is material. Free food, or a better ruler, etc. But what Jesus is trying and trying and trying to teach them is their true need was spiritual in nature. They needed a relationship with God through himself. But now I want to go to question five, where um, it, it asks, um, the Father placed this seal of approval on Jesus, the source of eternal life. How does God securely seal believers through Christ? And it gives us you know, a series of Bible verses. Anytime it does this in BSF, boy, they are some of the powerful verses that if you were ever wondering um, what Bible verses to start memorizing, these are the ones. Um, they are ones that will come up and speak to you as you're working and talking with other people. And they are words of truth. You relay them to people, it will change their life. These are words that will change people's lives. So let me just read them to refresh your memory of what they were. John 10, 28, 29. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Powerful promise. John 17, 6 through 12 says, and this is where Jesus is praying the high priestly prayer to God for us. And he says to the Father, I have revealed to you, to those whom you gave me out of this world, out of the world, they were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And the glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them by safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture would be fulfilled. And then John 17, 22-24. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. And to see my glory, the glory you have given me, because you love me before the creation of the world. Wow. Romans 8, 38, 39. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, 
neither height nor depth nor any anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I read that verse and I think, if you were tethered down into the immensity of the universe, height and depth, principalities and powers, angels and demons and life and death, all at the extremes, pulling and tugging away at you, and you're in free fall. <laughs> it says here, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Great promise. Ephesians 1, 13-14. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Wow, powerful words. Moving on to day three, um, looking at question 6a. It's as, uh, explain the difference between people's ideas about works and the one Jesus described. So we've talked about this uh, at length, uh, that our works tend to be very much along the lines of transactional activities, our productivity, our utility in the world, uh, how useful we can be to other people in, and then we value that uh, or assess that by our salary, our wages, how people give us commendations and titles you know, that all, at the end of the day, doesn't amount to a whole lot when you're empty and there is lack of purpose. I, I watch um, a lot of these uh, biopics on uh, the streaming services for my case study uh, class, and um, we look at the lives of CEOs. And I have yet to meet a CEO when they're so much in the world that they can speak, articulate, their um, understanding of the spiritual one. And the greatest people that I've met in my life who understands the spiritual have not been at all farthest from it. I would have to say that the people who are in the business world and very successful at what they're doing in this business world tend to be the ones most out of touch with what Jesus is talking about, what he cares about. So the spiritual world Jesus is speaking of, um, he's talking about a life that is entirely oriented around himself. You know, when you're a believer in God, the orientation is not at work. It's not about sexuality, and it's not going to be about how you're distraught because someone is not acknowledging your orientation. It is about a complete orientation around God where he is sovereign, and there's no way where anything else takes that place, nothing else takes that place where Jesus is at the center. He gives life to all through the Father, and it's entirely by His grace we act and live, we acknowledge that we breathe, and we, are the, we enjoy all that we do because of Him. And everything that we anticipate receiving into the bright and glorious future is because of our trust in Him. Isaiah 55 again says, Come, all you are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come and buy and drink. Come, buy milk and, and wine without money and without cost. The bread of life cannot be negotiated for. They can't be manipulated or haggled because then they'll be contaminated by the ways we manipulate them to be what we think we need. Yeah, You try doing that with a doctor, okay, when you have some serious disease, it doesn't get us to a good place. It must be received with a submissive heart. You cannot bargain your way out of the 
the detrimental, sinful condition that you and I are in, we cannot uh, mess with the, the diagnosis uh, nor the prognosis of what we need to do. We have to remember, he's the great physician, uh, as the scripture says. So here, 7a also reminds us, John 20, 31, and these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, Yeshua, Joshua, which in Hebrew means deliverer, is the anointed one, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, so the resurrection's so important, it says you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confessed and are saved. We celebrate very soon Christmas, but you know, Christmas is just the beginning, and the end of that is not the death, but the resurrection of our Lord. And to remind uh, my young people, I say, let's not call Easter Easter. Easter is a pagan word for that precious day of the resurrection. Let's call it what the Greeks did, which is Anastasis from which uh, the Anastasia, the word Anastasia, the name Anastasia comes. Anastasis in Greek means resurrection. And it's Anastasis Day that we commemorate, so precious to our faith. And moving on, um, I just want to end with one final word related to 12a. What did Jesus say about true security from John 6, 35 to 40? True security comes, it has to do with God's constant faithfulness to us. If you've ever heard of words like election or uh, eternal security, it means that God has chosen us before the foundation of the world to be his people. And then, uh, well, there's also free choice. And Jesus describes salvation as a choice and urges us to believe on the one that God has sent. And so, you know, some people say, well, what is it? Is it free choice or God's choosing? Isn't it a paradox? Yes, it is a paradox. And we speak about this in relation to God because kind of like quantum physics or things beyond our immediate human experience, there are aspects to God that we cannot experience because he's infinite. He is above and beyond the realm in which we live and um, experience. And so we come up against paradoxes like this because of the greatness of who God is. He cannot be contained in the little boxes of our mind, the categories of our thinking. And uh, he is not limited in this way. But he does tell us these things because they both explain something quite important. One, that when God's grace is given, that we, we must yield up ourselves to that uh, offer of free life that he gives us. But on the other hand, God is sovereign. And that makes us understand that our um, being called into uh, God's salvific work is not entirely, it has nothing to do with whether or not we qualify for it or even our choices are being made in the right direction. Because then, you know, any, on a, any other given day, we could be making the wrong choices away from God and maybe even to renege God entirely, to di disown Him, as people sometimes do. So what we do is we trust. First is that your salvation, to understand, is that salvation is totally a gift that you do not merit. You do not merit it. Your decision to follow him wasn't a decision made on your one of your better days <laughs> when you wanted to reform yourself. Your heart was uh, being shaped and drawn to God by God himself. And he will continue to shape and mold you in ways you cannot imagine your life to go. And this is important because if you ever thought that you were a stable person, um, you know 
on your bad days, how capricious and how often you and I flip-flop in our personalities, in our desires, in our devotions and our commitments. And so it, that's the wrong place. Our choice is the wrong place to place eternal security on. We rely entirely on the sovereignty and on the grace and mercy of God. And so Jesus says, all that the Father gives me, I will never drive away. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Verse 44. When people question and resist Jesus' word, Jesus says to them, of course you, don't, you won't understand because you're resisting by focusing on other things and not allowing God to draw you to himself. In verse 65, he says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. In verse 36 and 37, he says, but I have stated, you have seen me and still you do not believe. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never drive away. Great promise. So our relationship with God is initiated by God. And our development and spiritual maturation continues to be developed and undertaken by Him. If we remain in Him, if we remain in Him, He will remain in us. John 15, 4, He says, Remain in me, and I will remain in you. Just as no branch can bear fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine, Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me, I and, and I in him, will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So your identity is shaped by the one you love, and the one who loves you. What are ways that you have been remaining in his love? If you've ever been in love before, you understand what love can do to change you, right? Um, how does that love and devotion for God show and change you in ways that makes you want to serve and minister to God's people that He cares about in your church or in your family? And along the uh, with the mind that you are living, true, truly wanting to live and serve God there in those places, at home, at work, wherever God takes you, every small uh, project that He gives you for expanding the ways you can grow into Him and flourish by them. So for the believer, all places are sacred places. For the believer, all places are sacred places and all opportunities are sacred opportunities to serve and to glorify God. Where people are trapped in the darkness and emptiness and void of a godless ex existence. So let's go forth with hope and with strength knowing that we have been empowered for every good work to do in His name by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the great commission and calling you've given to us each and every day. Every time we think, Lord, that our lives are kind of boring and not going anywhere, forgive us for that wrong place that we have been in our minds where we feel powerless to do much of any good. When there are small, micro ways of service, micro missions at the church and in our families and lives of people that you have us meet each day, that we could do far more, touching with the word of truth, moving into the lives with service, with the heart of grace, and then calling our brothers in the church, our sisters in the church, to arise and shine and see the great one that we serve, see him anew and afresh. Thank you, Father. We praise you, Lord, for all that you're teaching us and all that you're going to continue to work through us Thank you, Father, for making us partners in the ministry that you could care so much about. You in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
You came to set the captives free You came to give us liberty And how I love you, my Lord How I love you, my Lord How I thank you for your gift of love to me And I will serve you, my Lord I will serve you, my Lord For your precious blood has won the victory Your blood will never lose its power By grace alone I stand secure Upon the cross my sins were nailed And through your death you tore the veil And how I love you, my Lord How I love you, my Lord How I thank you for your gift of love to me and I will serve you, my Lord I will serve you, my Lord For your precious blood has won the victory 